This afternoon, uh, this being the first Sunday of a month, we're going to be returning to our monthly psalm series. Uh, We're in Psalm 33 this week, so we are almost, we are a little over one-fifth of the way through the book of Psalms, although when we get to Psalm 119, we're going to be there for quite a while, uh, probably 8, 10, 11 years from now when we get there. (laughs) So let's hear God's word, God's holy word as we hear from the 33rd Psalm. Shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsels of the Lord stand forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Who fash- he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let us pray. We have heard your word, O Lord. And we ask that from your word, you would speak. That you would speak to us from your word and plant it deep within us. That we might grow thereby in Christ Jesus. Open our minds and hearts to receive from you. May our faith be increased and strengthened through your word by the work of your spirit. Would you guide this preacher? May the word of God be real to him as he declares the truth. And may he be chained to your word that he might freely declare your truth and do so with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we were in a psalm was 
uh, actually the book of December. In January, we did something slightly different for our first Sunday. Well, we were in Psalm 32 last time we were in the Psalms. And we looked at the blessedness of being forgiven and all the benefits that come from being forgiven and the great praise that is to be offered to God on account of being forgiven. It opened up with a statement of blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And it closed with this, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That out of forgiveness, out of being made right with God, we are then, because of what Christ has done for us, those who are righteous. And thus we are called upon to be glad in the Lord, to rejoice, to shout for joy, all who are upright in heart. That which we have done in being created in Christ Jesus, being made new creations, and because he is upright, we are counted as upright. And we are being more, being made more and more upright in heart in tiny little amounts compared to what we will be when Jesus returns. And our psalm today continues the thought, continues the, the thought of rejoicing in the Lord and praising him and exalting him continues, immediately takes on the same language. Psalm 32 ended with, And shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And here Psalm 33 begins with, Shout for joy in the Lord, you righteous. It's a continuation of the thought. So we need to keep that in mind as we look at this psalm and as we uh, try to mine what is in here and what God is declaring to us from His Word. And that praise befits the upright. So we have the summons to be glad in the Lord. We have a connection to the previous psalm. And so because God forgives his people, he is to be exalted. And now because of who God is, the one who is the creator and the king who also saves and redeems his people, he, we must rejoice and exalt in him. That's the basic idea of this psalm. Uh, the 33rd Psalm has a common, a very uh, frequently quoted verse that is oftentimes, very often, misapplied, which we'll be talking that in just a moment. It's in verse 12, if you're curious to know. 33, verse 12, it's oftentimes misapplied and misused. And we're going to touch on that in a little bit because it's very important to the idea of what's in this psalm. The psalm is broken down into roughly two halves. In verses 1 through 11, it speaks of God, of who he is in, in, in and of himself, in particular as the creator and as the king. The creator and the one who rules over his creation, speaking of it in terms of his word and his works. That his word and his works are good and righteous and worthy of being exalted. And his word and his works are revealed in his creative activity and in his activity of ruling over what he has made. The second half of the psalm is in verses 12 through 22. And it speaks of the blessedness that the people of God who have him as their Lord of what that blessedness is and the surety of his faithfulness to covenant that he has made with his people. He has made covenant and he will keep his covenant. 
and thus his people can and must rest secure in him. And recognizing that regardless of the means that he might use to work in his people's lives in different ways, he is the one who is to be praised. We thank God for the means that he uses. We must always thank the God who gives the means first and foremost. And so we're going to be looking at it from those two main ideas. And of course, there's different parts of each half. But let's dive right in. Starting in verses 1, we see in verses 1 through 3, the first basic division. And we have the continuing call to offer joyous praise and thanksgiving to God. We just read from verse 1, but listen to what it continues. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. In the the Mosaic uh, Covenant, religious life, uh, there was a whole category of priests who were instrumentalists. Those priests were the ones who were called upon to play the lyre, to play the ten strings, and for all the people to engage in loud shouts. But in spite of whatever difficulty the nation of Israel might have been facing, whatever struggle might be before them, this was the basic idea for them to operate in. Shout for joy to the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Listen to that. What is fitting? Or another way to say it. It is fitting for the upright to praise the Lord. That's another way of saying that. It is, or as my grandma would say, it's fitting for the upright. To praise the Lord. It's fitting. It's something that is appropriate. Something that can and should. And is a right thing to do. Of course one might say. I'm not particularly righteous. So why should I be. Have offers. Why should I accept this offer. To praise the Lord. And I know my own heart. And I can hardly say that I'm upright. Why should I. Say it's fitting for me to praise. Well, we looked at the last psalm. Is that the uprightness is being counted upright as in him. And being righteous in him. Knowing that there is a day when we will finally be fully upright and fully righteous. And thus we praise and exalt and glorify him. And from that we are set told, sing a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Verse 3 has been used ad infinitum in what was really big in the 80s and 90s, um, what was called the the worship wars. I don't like that term because it makes worship just about the music. As you know, this is actually an act of worship that we're doing right now. But the worship wars of whether or not we should just use, whether there should be new songs or old songs or blended songs, all those type of things. And one of one particular side would always quote Psalm 33, verse three, saying there always needs to be a, a new song that's being written. So we need to leave leave the old behind and just do the new. I don't know that that's what this psalm is saying at all. What is the new song we're speaking of? It's. Singing songs of what God has done for us and is doing for us. To remember he's still at work. It's also looking forward to the new covenant that's coming in Christ Jesus. 
the new song that's coming in him. It's not a matter of forgetting and leaving behind or out with the old and in with the new. And there's plenty of great new songs that are being written. I had a conversation with somebody this week, talked about that. And there's plenty that I like hearing on the radio. And then I think about saying if, if, we, if, if a congregation tried to sing this, it might be a disaster. But there's plenty of great songs that are being written today. But they all communicate in old truth. It's not about communicating new truth. It's about communicating the old truth. It's not about newness chronologically, but about newness in terms of God's present working. He's always at work. And that can be communicated in a song that's 1,500 years old or a song that was written in this last year. It's the idea, it's also continued praise. Continued singing to the Lord. We can't rely and say, well, I, I did this yesterday or last year. It's not something we continue continuous doing of the, of the people of, the Lord, of, of God to sing his praises. So we see the opening exhortation, the opening call, shout for joy. Why? Because praise befits the righteous, be the upright, to give thanks to the Lord for as many good things that he's done for us. And we have in verse 4 a very important word, for. Not the number four, but the word for. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his steadfast, the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. So what do we, what do we, what do we see here? We see there's a reason given, because the word of the Lord is upright. What God has spoken is true. It's built into his name. We sang from a versified version of Psalm 33 as our opening song today. And it actually used the, uh, the name Yahweh. The idea that what God says is true and can be trusted is built into that name. Which, And we've learned this before, but it's the I am and the I am from the I am that I am when God said that to Moses at the burning bush. You take and just mush all that together and you get Yahweh. And you get Yahweh. And what does that communicate? He is who he is. All that, all that God is is always all that he is. He's not made up of parts. He's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. He's always all that he is. And so thus the one who made the promise before is the one who is still that same one. And so thus the word of the Lord is upright. And so thus it is befitting for the upright to praise the Lord. Of course, we don't do any scripture justice if we just look at it from the standpoint of the trees, we need to take a step back and look at it from a high altitude perspective as well, looking at it in the context of the entirety of the scripture. So we ask this. If it is befitting for the upright to praise the Lord, from whence come, from where does that uprightness come? Well, it comes from the word. But also, we could say, from whom comes that uprightness? The word of God in the entirety of scriptures is not simply spoken of as a what. It is a what. 
It is a rev- the revelation of God, what he has spoken. But the word of God that is upright, that what testifies to a who, who is called the word of God. And so the word of God, the who of the word of God is upright. And so all those who are united to that who, and who is that? In John 1, Jesus Christ, the word become flesh, having dwelt among us. Or or the way I like to translate that, having become flesh and having taken up his tent among us. The word is tented, he tented among us. This who. And so if we're in the one who is the word of God, the one that the revelation of God reveals and it all testifies to, we, are, we have that uprightness. And so thus it is fitting for us to praise the Lord. And so we have the word of God. In fact, how is it that God, God created? He created with his word. He spoke everything into existence. And God said, let there be light. Read in light of John 1 1, which of course goes back to creation, we could say Jesus is the said, and God said, Let there be light. But we have this one who created. And we see that not only is his work upright, but all that he does is done in faithfulness. What do we hear when we hear the word faithful? We hear someone upon someone who can be relied upon. Someone who can be trusted. Someone who always does what he says he's going to do. That's what faithful is. Someone who is true to his character. His character being absolute perfection. He alone is faithful. And thus all of his works reflect his faithfulness. All of his works are faithful because they reflect his character, they reflect his person. And that is in his creation. And that is in his new creation. Testifies of his faithfulness. His work testifies of who he is. His work is reliable and true. And thus his work says this, that his word can be trusted. That his word is true. All creation testifies of his, great, of his greatness, testifies of his character and of his nature. And we see that fleshed out in verses 5 through 5. Uh, in verse 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. It's built into his creation. He loves righteousness and justice. If it is right and true and just, he loves it. And he always acts in accordance with that character and always works in accordance with that character. And the creation itself testifies to his faithful, steadfast love, to his righteousness, to his justice. We hear that in Psalms. Verses 6 and 7, we see the working out of that character. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Not only did God make, he continues to guide and to rule over his creation. He is not the God of of deism. A God of deism is a false God. 
deism is says this yeah there's a god we don't necessarily know who that god is or what that god is maybe an energy force but there was this uh, uncaused cause so to speak who got everything started and now he just watches things Let's it go. There's a song from the 80s and 90s that I grew up with that we would always be sung at events that were intended to tug at our heartstrings. A song by Bette Midler called From a Distance. From a distance, God is watching. But in that song, that's all he's doing. He's just watching. He's not acting. God is always acting in his creation. Always active and always at work. It's not that God got things started and now he leaves everything up to us. No, but he is actively working in what he created to bring about his purposes and to bring about his ends. There is nothing that happens in history, nothing that happens in creation in which we cannot say God's hand is there. God's hand is involved. Even in the difficulties, even in the calamities, even in the struggles, God's hand is there. And for the one who knows God, that should be of great comfort. That should be of great comfort. He's in absolute control of all that is going on. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Think about waters of the sea. During this time of year, we get to look out upon the waters of, depending on which part of the island we're on, the Puget Sound or the Strait of San Juan de Fuca or the Saratoga Passage. Look out on those waters. And during this time of year, we get to see lots of fun, exciting things with lots of wind and the waters rocking. And in the last few, uh, last month, we had the rare occurrence of some king tides where the, because, of, because of everything aligning just right at the time of a, of a spring tide, the waters went so far up, they, cro- they crossed the roads up uh, in Anacortes. That was a new thing for me. When we think of water, we think of it as something that we can't control. We think of it as something that is, is uncontainable. But what does it say here? He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He takes that which is uncontrollable and brings order to it. There's nothing that is outside of order. Nothing outside of order for him because he created and he is ruling. There is nothing that happens in which his hand is not involved. And then we see the results of that in verses 8 through 11. The expectation that should come from that. Because the the one who created the entire universe, all that we see and all that we don't see, says this, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsels of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. The entirety of creation owes its existence to him. Thus all should fear him. 
That should be the expectation. Now, if everything had worked out from the moment of creation in the garden, had we not done the thing that we uh, should not have done, had we kept that covenant of works of do this and live, everything would be, all creation would indeed be fearing him. Now, creation is faulted and faltered because the vice regent that God appointed over creation fell and sinned and brought rebellion and sin into creation. That vice regent being us in the garden, in Adam, when he rebelled. But yet, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. When we understand God aright, that should be the response that we, say, that we see. That we, first of all, should look at all that he has done and that all that he is doing. We should look at his great work in our Lord Jesus Christ, in him having sent him into the world the second person of the Trinity, having taken upon flesh the God-man, having lived for us and died for us and rose from the dead for us, should bring us to awe. And it may not make sense to us when we see people around us looking at creation, looking at things and shaking fists at God. That's the, ba- that's the basic nature of our fallen state. Yet that's what we're calling people to when we call them to Christ. We're calling upon them to, fear, to enter into relationship with God and become his worshipers through our Lord Jesus Christ in union with Christ. Who, who else could simply speak something and it come to be? Some of us maybe sometimes more than others, depending on how we're feeling. You know, this time of year, I have the struggle of whether I'm going to get out of bed and do the things that I need to do or stay warm. And I kind of wish, I sometimes just wish I could say, breakfast be made. It doesn't happen. But the Lord spoke things into creation. The Lord spoke things into existence. And thus, all the more reason to be in awe of him and to fear him. Furthermore, as a continuation of that, of that vein of thought, the Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Very similar to what we might see in Isaiah 40, in which says, all the nations of the earth are but a drop, a drop from a bucket. And by the way, that includes the country in which we live. Sometimes that's hard to hear. But this country is also a drop from a bucket in light of who God is. And he is, he, he is even active in the plans and the working of men and is active to bring about his purposes. He's ruling over all things by what we call his providence and in his sovereignty. His providential care is, the, his, is his simply working in creation and working in history to bring about his ends. There's nothing that happens that is outside of his providence. Nothing. Because he is sovereign. He's the sovereign ruler and he, is, he can do anything that he wishes to do. 
All that he wishes to do is righteous and just and true to his character. But he can do all that he wishes to do. And that includes his work in history and what happens in history. Which from, a stand, which from a further standpoint, he's working out all things for his glory. And he's working out everything for the good of his people that we might be more conformed to the image of his son. From Romans 8. So the Lord is ruling over all things in his providence and his sovereignty. And so we've established now in the first half of this psalm that God is the creator and he is the king. He's the creator who is still active in his creation. He's the creator who's intervened in his creation, which we saw in the last psalm, to send one by by whom we could be forgiven, by whom we could be counted righteous and be upright. And thus we praise him and acknowledging he's still at work. Which now brings us to the second half, and it opens up with a statement with regards to the blessedness of those who of those whose God is the Lord. And this is the verse I mentioned earlier that is oftentimes misapplied. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now, oftentimes we'll see this on bumper stickers. We'll see this on T-shirts. And typically usually has a picture of an American flag or an eagle or something along those lines. And that could be applied that way if we stopped there. If we stop right there, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. But if we keep reading, he defines what that means. What does he mean here? He says, the people whom he has chosen for his heritage. In the immediate historical context of this psalm, in its, in its context of the Mosaic Covenant, in the period of God's history, in his in creation, and his redemption. It's, it's applying specifically to Israel in, the, in its historical life setting, the people whom he has chosen. It was Israel who was in a unique covenant with Yahweh, beyond the general, what we call the Noahic covenant, that all other, na- that all other peoples are under. But that covenant, the Mosaic covenant, as we've been learning in the book of Hebrews, and the covenant of circumcision, have served their purposes and are no longer in force. Save, of course, the abiding moral law of God, which preceded and transcended all the covenants, as that is the actual law that reflects God's nature, the moral law being the Ten Commandments, what we call the Ten Commandments, and all their various different nuances. We often want to apply verse 12 and Americans are not the first in the history of, of, of countries to apply to their own country. The, um, the British did it as well, others in history. But we often want to apply this to a specific, what we would call geopolitical entity, a country. We've mentioned we've seen it on t-shirts, posters, bumper stickers. But there's a specific definer of this, as we mentioned, the people whom God has chosen for himself. Do we see anywhere in Scripture where there is a nation state, including our own, that we can call the people whom God has chosen for himself? If we claim that for the USA, for the United Kingdom, for Australia, uh, for Taiwan, insert your country here, 
We'd better have scriptural warrants. If not, we are putting words into God's mouth. What, what some folks referred to in the past as manifest destiny is only true if it is found in scripture. And I don't find it. So who is this nation whom God has blessed, who has God as their Lord, as its Lord? As mentioned in immediate context, Israel in accordance to the Mosaic Covenant and that covenant of circumcision, but both of those, as we've stated, is past. Israel has fulfilled its purpose of ushering in Messiah and the terms and conditions of the Mosaic Covenant protected that people so they wouldn't destroy themselves. And thus they could bring in Messiah. Because that is really where what all people would do to themselves. We would destroy themselves. Destroy ourselves. We look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And we see some language that actually sounds similar to what's in this psalm, particularly in verse 10. But 1 Peter chapter 2. which we did dealt with this about four and a half years ago or so. It says this, But you, to whom is he speaking? He's speaking here most likely to Gentile believers in Rome. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. But who does he define here as the holy nation, the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the people for his own possession? He doesn't define it as those who reside in Rome, but as the believers to whom he is writing. The elect of God, those whom he has chosen for himself. That is... It's the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is the nation whose God is the Lord and this blessed nation. We oftentimes speak about we need to make sure we need to have a transformed nation. Say there's already a transformed nation, my brothers and sisters. It's called the church of Jesus Christ. It's called the church of Jesus Christ. And this is not a new approach to this text. Listen to John Gill, who was a, an 18th century, that's the 1700s, Baptist preacher who was, um, you might say in terms of pastoral generations, he was the great, great, great grandfather of Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon pastored the church he pastored late, many years later. But he says this, And the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance, not Israel only, but the Gentiles also, not all mankind, but a peculiar people whom the Lord has chosen out of the world to be his possession and who are his jewels and a peculiar treasure. These are happy being the Lord's portion and the lot of his inheritance. And he chooses an inheritance for them, adopts and begets them unto it and makes them meet to be partakers of it. John Calvin says this, Therefore the prophet declares that those whom God takes under his guardianship are blessed because God's purpose is not hidden from them, for it is seen in action in the safety of the church. You see, simply acknowledging 
We might say, but is there not a country that acknowledges there's one God who created everything to whom men and women are obligated and who is made as well known? Isn't that the nation whose God is the Lord? Well, while that is certainly a Christian idea, it is not uniquely Christian. It is not uniquely Christian. It's one of the foundations of Christian thinking. Muslims, Jews, Sikhs, and even adherents of Hare Krishna would say that same thing. That there's one God who created everything to whom people are obligated and who's revealed his will. No, it's the church and the church alone that is this nation. Invisibly, as the people of God who have been eternally and invisibly united to Christ. And visibly, in the words of the 39 Articles, a congregation of faithful Christians in which the pure word of God is preached, the sacraments are duly ministered according to Christ's ordinances. That is this nation. Redeeming Grace Church and all other gospel churches throughout the world. And we don't have a stranglehold on this as a church. There's all sorts of churches throughout, the, throughout our county and, and throughout the state and throughout the nation, throughout the world. Well, this is true that are outposts or embassies of this nation, the visible expressions of this nation whose God is the Lord. And all that to point out, in being united with this people whom God has chosen for himself, being united to him by faith in Jesus Christ, we know then what it is and know the blessings of what follows in this psalm we must be sure the reason we spent time there is to is so we could know who it is who truly knows these blessings and can rely upon them and thus the joy of inviting others to join in to that people verses 13 through 17 the lord looks down from heaven he sees the children of man From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Here the Lord looks down from heaven and sees all the children of man. Think about the words of the disciples' prayer. Our Father in heaven. It communicates the grandness of God that he is outside of the bounds of creation and he sees all and knows all and is working in all. And thus we, he's applying the nature of God as ruler over all creation and specific blessing to his people. He sees all the children of man and he looks out over all the inhabitants of the earth. He's working in all these things and there's nothing that is outside of his knowledge. And as we stated earlier, and he states again, he's directing the deeds of all people as he has fashioned their hearts and observes their deeds. And it is from that that we see the mighty power of the Creator and King to save and redeem his people. How is it that in the immediate context here, in its historical context in the life of Israel, that the King would have been saved? the Davidic ruler, or David himself. He says, not by the army, even if there's an army involved. 
not by strength, even if there's some strength involved. And not by human devices and implements like war horses, even though those might be involved. God is the one to whom credit is to be given. As an example of God using means, we sometimes try to make dichotomies and say, well, I'm not going to go to the doctor, I'm just going to trust God. We can go to the doctor and thank God that he used that doctor's knowledge to bring some relief to us in our medical distress. He used the means. Or other things. Going to a financial advisor. As an example. But it is not that particular person that is to give the ultimate thanks and praise. But rather it is God. And indeed God did many times. We think of David. After he had been anointed king. But before it became reality. In which he conquered Goliath. It was the Lord's fight and he did it in the Lord's way. Trusting the Lord. Not taking upon himself armor that didn't fit. And when we read that account, we're oftentimes tempted to put ourselves in David's shoes. Say, yeah, I'm David. I'm going to beat Goliath. And maybe sometimes we do. Whether it be our sin or something like that. But then sometimes we go in there and we go on, try to be that David, and we take on Goliath and we end up uh, metaphorically with our arms and legs cut off. You see, brothers and sisters, we're not David in that story. We're, we're faithless Israel who needs a champion on our behalf. And this idea of God saving the king goes beyond David, goes beyond the kings of Israel. Because we have a king who entered into human history. This king who was saved by the power of God from the death which he died. For he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead and by his life, death and resurrection, we too are saved from eternal wrath unto eternal life. It is by his might and his strength One of the reasons, Ephesians, uh, there's a prayer in Ephesians 1 that is one of my favorite prayers that I pray for when I go to the Lord in prayer. I pray, I pray for myself and I pray for others. Starting in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, for you, remembering you in my prayers. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And then you can keep reading there, 21 through following. But that our eyes might be open to the greatness of the work that he's doing in us and for us. And recognize from, when, from whence does come our life. 
And so God saved the king. And because he saved the king, rescued him and brought him to rose him from the dead, we too in him have that hope of resurrection. And And we see the greatness of his power in his transcendence. But in verses 18 and 19 now, we see the, that in being that nation whom, over whom God is Lord and being blessed, that people whom God has chosen for himself, we now see the blessed nearness of that God who, over, over, who goes over all things and he redeems and saves. The eyes of the Lord is on those who fear him. And he defines that as this, those who hope in his steadfast love. That's what, how the psalm is defining what it is to fear him, to hope in his steadfast love, to expect, to look to it, to hold on to it, his steadfast love, his covenant love. He has a unique love for those whom he has called to himself. It's a covenant faithful love. And he keeps his word. And we might say and look around us, or look in our own circumstances, and I've done it, and I'm sure you've done it as well, of, I don't know that your love is really true for me because of severe difficulty. If we're honest, and we should be honest, we've all been there. I've been there. So how do we know that his love can be trusted? Romans 5, 8 tells us this. God's love is demonstrated in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we know his love. And so in waiting for his love, in trusting in his love, that is what it, that's one of the means by which we fear him. And in verses 20 through 22, we have the closing words, and it ends where it begins with Words of praise, words of exaltation, words of joy. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our hearts are glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. So what is the posture of being in him? It is waiting, trusting, looking, resting. And where does our gladness come from? It comes by trusting in his holy name, being united to Jesus by faith. Look at the last words. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. We cannot minimize God's love for his people. There, there was in, in my own personal life, and I think sometimes in our corners of Christianity, in our particular corners we walk in, we, some, we, we may have in some ways, overreacted or overcorrected to some misapplications and misemphasis on the love of God and kind of said, I'm not comfortable with that idea of God's love for us. I want to talk about His holiness and His justice and His righteousness, which are good and glorious things to talk about, by the way. But because He loves us. And we must rest in that. So how do we know that the steadfast love of God is upon the nation whom God is the Lord? Upon those whom he has chosen for himself? This, Jesus Christ, he died for us. And we have life in him and forgiveness. So we wait on him, we trust him, we look to him. We live 
from resting in him, not in order to rest in him, but because, from resting in him. And from that we can live in him. So brothers and sisters, in closing, we have every reason to shout for joy to the Lord because he is our creator. He is our king. But he is not just the creator and, our, and king. He is our creator in his new creation. He is our king who loves us, cares for us, and redeems us. And so let us shout for joy his gladness. Let us shout for joy his truth to one another and his truth to those who are yet to join this community of people known as the people whom God has chosen for himself, that blessed nation. Let us pray. Father, you are wonderful and glorious. And it is, it is amazing that you would call us to rejoice in you and to shout for joy. So help us today, Lord, that we might recognize the great things you have done for us, that we might sing for joy to you, even when it's really hard so to do. And we pray these things, our Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.